1: people are doing with craft beer, what people are doing with smaller coffee producers, I think we could do something like that with denim, with the history that's here, Like, like making something that's of this place, of North Carolina, of the history of denim, but with a modern kind of spin.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers. I'm Jamie Derringer and
3: this is Clever. Today we're talking to Victor Litvinenko, designer and co-founder of Raleigh Denim Workshop, a manufacturer and purveyor of high quality, handcrafted jeans that have become cult favorites for their fit, wash, construction, and attention to detail. In fact, the label in each pair
2: says, handcrafted in North Carolina by non-automated jean smiths. Victor co-founded Raleigh Denim in 2007 with his wife, Sarah Yarborough, and they describe it as an art project, romantic adventure, and American enterprise with a focus on design, process, material, and craft. In addition to traditional jeans making, they've also branched out into furniture and upholstery design and have collaborated on projects with OMA, Bernhardt Design, and Commune Design, among others. Let's get the story from Victor.
1: My name is Victor Litvinenko. I am one of the co-founders and designers at Raleigh Denim Workshop. We are located in Raleigh, North Carolina. We predominantly focus on making super high-end, thoughtfully designed clothing. More jeans than anything, but it's branched out quite a bit. And over the last few years, we've been doing some design work in furniture, textiles, uh, interiors, yeah, that's it.
2: Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was your family like? What were you like as a kid?
1: I was born in Trenton, New Jersey to, I guess, first generation. My parents are first generation from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my grandparents came over after World War II. We moved to North Carolina when I was maybe a year old. So I have really spent all of my time in... Raleigh and suburbs of Raleigh uh, when I was growing up. As a kid, I was probably had like a little bit more energy than I should have and <laughs> was really curious about. Maybe
2: as an adult too, you think?
1: <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. It still exists. Um, I don't know. I, I remember just being curious about a lot of things and wanting to jump in and wanting to know and wanting to touch things and eat things and do things. And I, I don't think that's actually changed much. I think I have a little bit more clarity of. Uh, why I do those things, I guess. I don't know.
3: Were you like one of those kids that always asked why? And then when you got yeah. the answer, you were like, well, why? But why?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I like was the the most annoying kid in the world <laughs> in that sense. I mean, I remember my dad just saying, like, if you ask me why again, I'm not even going to tell you. And I'd be like, well, how come? <laughs> 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 he was not so happy about that, I remember. <laughs>
2: Did you feel connected to your re- Ukrainian heritage?
1: Not too much, honestly. I mean, we don't don't really have any other family members. Like, my grandparents were here, but they never spoke English. Both my mom's parents spoke a little bit of English. Uh, my dad's parents never spoke English. Uh, no uncles and—or, I guess, I one, one uncle, but didn't see him very often. When I was graduating college, the last credit I needed was foreign language, and I didn't want to take foreign language in America— so, I found some university in, in Ukraine and got them to do a summer session, just foreign language. Um, and so, I went to Ukraine. I was the first person in our family to ever go back. So, my grandparents came over in the 40s. My parents had, ne- had never been. Oh. And I still have tons of family over there. So, my last name is Litvinenko, which sounds kind of crazy here, but, um, but over there...
3: Is it like Smith?
1: Yeah, it's like Smith. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's the most common name in the world. So anyways, growing up, didn't have too much connection to it. But since then, certainly have have learned a lot and been over there a bunch of times. So.
2: so when you were an adolescent, a teenager, did you still have all this energy and curiosity? And how did that show up in your creativity, style and personality?
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um I think in my personality and style, especially when I was in, in the teenage years, it was, I, I guess I would learn and do or learn design um, just by doing. I, I don't think I thought too much about what I was doing. It was more like I just want to do it and do it and do it and do it and, do it and learn from it every time. Um, it took me a long time to get to the point where I was confident and comfortable in mediums. And I have to get to that point before I can actually start designing the way that we do now, I guess. Um, So it was just more about experiencing the materials, craft, I say craft, like the the finesse of a medium. Mm -hmm. Um, What
2: types of things were you exploring in your adolescence? Were you playing (laughs) around with like clay or were you sewing back then? uh,
1: Not sewing, but but clay, uh, woodworking, I I really I remember in eighth grade or ninth grade taking a a small engines class and and that was so fascinating to me and we were building these little cars and making CO two cars and doing all this woodworking and I was really into painting and photography too with no real direction I mean I think I was just like a, a motor without a um, without a steering wheel mm-hmm. uh, and I was just like doing as much as I could for the sake of experience I guess. Um, not much of it was good. I mean, I don't know that any of it was good. I just. But it's all learning.
2: It. It's all like sort of priming the, the soil. Yeah. I bet that yeah. small engines class totally helps you maintain your machinery now.
1: It does. And I actually, <laughs> the guy that, that taught that class, his name's Mr. Coop and K O O P is in Paul. And I saw him in the grocery store, like last year. And I just, I lost my mind and I was like, Mr. Coop, Like You're the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing. (laughs) You're the reason I'm able to do what I'm doing. And it was really cool.
2: Man, shop teachers and art teachers, they're the superheroes of society, I think.
1: Man, for me, for sure. Yeah.
2: So you mentioned
3: going over to Ukraine during college. But before we talk about that, I'd like to hear about, you know, when you were in high school, um, thinking about college, what did you think you wanted to get into and why? And then where did you end up?
1: I thought that I wanted to get out of Raleigh. That's about it. Um, And I was, I thought that I would want to go to design school, but I actually wanted to get out of Raleigh more than anything. Um, I think that's a common feeling for some kids in high school. Um, But I was, I was really into soccer too. And I was pretty good at it. And I ended up getting a scholarship to a school in Jersey city. And and I just wanted to be close to New York. So I was like, I don't even care. I'm just going to go. Was um, it
3: like Stockton or something? What's up there? Uh, St. Peter's College. Oh, okay.
1: So I went there really just to get close to the city and ended up getting an internship with a fashion photographer, Fabio Cisola. And I don't know, just kind of got in a little bit to like what was going on in New York at that time through playing soccer in Jersey City. And and Sarah and I actually she, she went up there at the same time too. She uh, was at NYU. So we ended up being closer up there than we were here. But just at St. Peter's took, you know, the basic first and second year classes. After that, that was right when September 11th happened and um, decided to come back to Raleigh and ended up finishing school, uh, university at, at NC State. I really wanted to go to design school at NC State, but my dad... Was pretty adamant about me studying business or computers. And so I ended up going to business school, which I think is working out all right. <laughs> <laughs> I was able to um, kind of audit design school classes too. So most of my friends were in the design school. So I was kind of connected to that in a peripheral way. And I had, a, I had my own studio in the upstairs of this little house I was living in and, and was making things all the time. I don't know. I, I still kind of wish I went to design school, but I didn't.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I mean, that's sort of a common conundrum. I think as a designer, I wish I had a business education as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure a lot of creative business professionals wish they had been allowed to explore the full extent of their expression in design school. As you know, I feel like a double major is a is an awesome scenario if you can pull it off. But
1: not it's everybody essential. Can. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a couple conversations with the professors of the design school at NC State about that. And I I just can't wrap my head around them, like teaching all this beautiful design work, but not like the students coming out of there, not knowing how to pitch an idea or not (laughs) knowing how to like pitch a project or write a budget or those things that we all have to do to exist in the world uh, in a design field. It's it's essential.
3: Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned that Sarah was at the same school as you. Is that did you meet in college? And can you tell us the story?
1: Yeah, it's a long story. Um, Sarah and I met in in Raleigh in it was our senior year of high school. I guess the summer before our senior year. They were showing the World Cup final soccer game at a little pizza shop. And my best friend was dating her best friend and she showed up and for me it was love at first sight. At halftime of this game, 45 minutes later, later, I told my friend I was going to marry her. We (laughs) ended up just hanging out that day. Can you pick my
2: lottery numbers?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, We we ended up just hanging out that day, and we didn't see each other again for a long time. And randomly, my brother won tickets to see Miss Saigon at the Performing Arts Center. And he called and was like, hey, I got four tickets. I'm taking my girlfriend. Do you want to bring somebody? Let's go. And all my friends were at spring break, and I was not super into going to the beach and doing the spring break thing. And so I had Sarah's phone number, and I called her. I was like, hey, we haven't talked in a really long time. I don't even know if you remember who I am, but would you like to go to this thing tonight? And she said, yeah, of course. That sounds awesome. Uh, But today's my birthday. Oh, my gosh. And and I've got plans. And (laughs) she called her mom. She canceled her plans. She came over. I cooked dinner. I baked her a cake and then we hung out basically every day since then.
2: Oh, it's a beautiful love story. Baked her a is. cake. It's that's so crazy. awesome. So it. that was in high school and you guys were obviously going to different schools.
1: Right. In high school we were going to different schools and then we both had committed to the colleges and she was going to go to NYU and I was going to St. Peter's. So we had already committed to do those things before that day before her birthday. So we ended up moving up to New York together, and we're closer there. We lived closer together there than we did in Raleigh.
2: So that was you mentioned a couple of years before nine eleven. Then nine eleven, did you guys both decide to move back to Raleigh after nine eleven? And was that just because it was such a heavy tragedy that it kind of felt better to be close to home, or
1: uh, it was a heavy tragedy? I mean, living in New York is difficult. Going to school and living in New York is even more difficult. Um, I mean, it was, a, it was a lot of things. I mean, it's yeah. expensive. It's all those things. And, like, we've got one of the best design schools in the country here. In-state tuition here is pennies. Cost of living here is pennies. Like, it just made a lot of sense on a lot of levels.
2: So this love story obviously progressed into a profoundly collaborative creative relationship as well and the founding yeah. of a business. So get us there. Connect those dots for us.
1: <laughs> wow. Um so we came back to Raleigh in 2001, 2002, something like that. Um, and I graduated in 2004 or five. We traveled a good bit. I was going back and forth to Ukraine uh, every summer, I guess, for two or three years. Uh, Sarah was she like rode her bike from Finland to Prague with her brother, and then hitchhiked through Croatia and.
3: Oh, so she went Korea. with you.
1: No, I mean we kind of just like you kind of did your own thing. Yeah, we wanted each other to follow our hearts and our dreams and to adventure, and you know we kept coming back to each other and kept kept coming back, or we would meet up over there, or I ended up getting to play soccer in Switzerland for a year, and she came and met me over there for a while, and a lot of travel, a lot of adventure. It was like that time of life where don't really have any responsibilities, don't. (laughs) <laughs> don't really have anything to lose. Yeah, don't that's really have the any time money. to
3: do it when you're young, yeah. like during college or when you're in your twenties. You can kind yeah. of float around and experiment and try all kinds of different things before you settle down and try to take root somewhere.
1: Yeah, I, when we moved back to Raleigh, I was really into cooking, and so this is kind of the, where the philosophy of what we're doing started or for me started. In college, I wanted a job. I mean, I needed a job. And I wanted to get a job where they would pay me to learn something that I wanted to learn. And cooking was the thing I really wanted to learn. So I ended up getting a job at, I don't know, one of the best restaurants in Raleigh. Um, just I walked in and I said, hey, I want to learn how to cook. And they were like, what do you know? I said, nothing. <laughs> and the chef gave me a broom and he said, sweep the hotline. And I did. And he was like, okay. like And I you know I swept every single nook and cranny and got every single bit of dust. And he was like, okay. Like if you can do, if you do what I tell you to do, you can be here. And after a really short amount of time, I bought all the textbooks for the Culinary Institute of America. And I was super into cooking. Um, And there was actually a jump back. I went back to New York after that. And I worked at Nobu in Tribeca for, I don't know, six or eight months. And then ended up coming back to Raleigh, working at this restaurant again. But the chef would have wine tastings every day. And... With just purveyors that were coming in, and I really wanted to learn about wine, I started making wine. So he would he would let me sit in on the tastings with him. I started buying grapes from Western North Carolina and spending time up in the mountains. And really loved these like the philosophy of the winemakers that were focused on quality over quantity. Mm. And they were you know, going through their vineyards and clipping off some of the grapes so that the grapes that stayed tasted more concentrated, more interesting. Um, it's a seasonal product, it's a product in quotes um, because it is a product but it's a craft, it's an art and I I love the singularity of it, I love that like what one winemaker was doing in their vineyards, in their winery, you you can't copy it, you could grow the same grapes next door, you could buy the same barrels but the magic of like what they're doing in their hearts and their hands and their minds is different and Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that it's better or worse it's that like There's some purity and honesty of like the soul of their work, and that was really interesting to me. So I started buying some grapes, spending time up in the mountains. I was inviting my friends over, and we would stomp on the grapes, and I'd make this wine in my mom's garage. And
3: wait, you had friends come over, and you guys stomped grapes?
1: Yeah, every year. Yeah, I would buy. (laughs) I, I would actually buy a ton of grapes. I was working with this professor at Wake Forest University who had a vineyard and we would make wine together every year and compare That
3: sounds like so much
1: fun. It was so much fun. And I mean it's kind of terrifying too. It's one of those things that I didn't know anything about. There wasn't a lot of information on the web. There weren't many books about it. It was like it was really just a like jump in and and see how it goes. And that's kind of my a lot of the way that I <laughs> did things for a long time from when I was a kid until I mean even still. But um but learned every year, it got a little better every year. But while I was spending time up in the mountains, I met these people that used to work in the old denim factories. And during that time I was making wine, I was also I also started sewing and I was making handbags and hats and I would just like sell them at these little craft fairs.
2: Were you grinding your own grains too and like baking, <laughs> baking <laughs> loaves of artisan bread? Like uh,
1: <laughs> I was, yes. <laughs> I, I love this just like I love making things
3: well I mean you talked about how curious you were as a kid and and how energetic you were so you have all of this curiosity mixed with this boundless energy and sometimes that can be a hindrance but it sounds like you took all of that and put it into learning all kinds of new crafts and using your hands and, and your brain and your body to like make all of these amazing things.
1: While I was up in the mountains, I was meeting these people that worked in the denim factories and and that started like percolating in my head. And then
2: when you say denim factories, are you talking about textiles or are you talking about people who were making garments?
1: Making garments. Okay. I mean, there's this huge history of denim production in North Carolina, both the fabrics and the cutting and sewing. I mean, there was there was a sewing factory in every town in Western North Carolina. 40 years ago Uh, and now there's there's not many but there were a lot of old people that used to work in those factories and Mm. I just got interested in that and kind of over time a lot of these ideas about farm-to-table cooking about the singularity of winemaking about denim indigo the history of denim production in North Carolina it all just kind of like all those ideas got put into one hat and it was like oh wait you know what people are doing with craft beer what people are doing with smaller coffee producers i was like we could do something like that with denim with the history that's here like like making something that's of this place of mm-hmm. north carolina of the history of denim but with a modern kind of spin on details quality you know this kind of principles of winemaking that i was really into uh, just applying those exact principles to different medium and and that's kind of where we were thinking like oh what's the ideal pair of jeans and I had you know some sewing experience making these bags and hats and one of the summers that I was in Ukraine got so bored I mean like just think like out in the country there's absolutely nothing to do there's only like 50 people live in this town there's nothing around One day I was just getting so antsy and I was like, ah, and I got my aunt's treadle sewing machine and I fixed it and I went to the town and I bought some fabric and I was like, I'm going to make some pants. I spent a week like tracing a pair of pants that I had, making a pattern, trying to cut and sew these pants on an 18 or early 1900 sewing machine. (laughs) Um, I didn't have anything for the waistband and Sarah had sent me some cookies that were wrapped up in a inch and a half wide baby blue grosgrain ribbon and that doesn't stretch so I sewed that to the inside of the waistband and that was the first pair of pants I had ever made and then when I got home I was like oh wow I think I could actually do this and I had this pair of pants and there's a very good sewer and and that's kind of where starting to make pants came from
2: Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Okay, so I like that... um, I I understand the foundation. I kind of get, you know, how your mind is working and how all these things are gelling and why you're in pursuit of the ideal pair of jeans. And then I've read that, you know, you and Sarah started making jeans in your apartment. You had a couple of sewing machines in lieu of a couch and a sofa and a coffee table. And you kind of perfected your patterns, in that apartment. And that was that the founding of Raleigh denim?
1: Kind of. Yeah. But it wasn't our intention to start a company. Um, So
2: yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, are you just there sewing jeans just to make like perfect jeans for yourselves? And then,
1: okay. No, it was really a personal project. I mean, I get obsessed about things and I want to do them a thousand times so I can learn the details and learn how to hold it and learn the, you know, learning through experience and and so I'd make a pair of jeans every single day. Sarah was still at school or in school. I was coaching a soccer team in the evenings and I would sew all day and then I would go coach and then Sarah and I would look at the what I was making, we'd take it apart, we'd adjust the pattern, we'd talk about details, this and that, we'd look at other things, and then the next day we'd do it again and then again and then again and again. And if you do something many times you can figure it out or we can figure I don't know we figured it out and after I don't know after we had made a couple hundred pairs we were like oh maybe there's something here because I I was wearing them around town and people were asking and a couple people started buying them from us and we are like oh maybe this is something and that was I don't know 2007 we started making jeans in like like January 2007 as the project. And then I guess by, God, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> by 2008, we had like moved out of, moved the sewing machines out of the apartment and into this little warehouse with no heat and no windows. And we were like, okay, let's maybe let's give us a little bit of a go.
2: What was the first benchmark or milestone where you guys decided like hey this might be a business and then holy shit it's a business now like there has to be (laughs) like an order or something that comes in that like makes it official
1: yeah yeah god we were doing some odd jobs uh we had i think at that point we probably had i don't know four or five sewing machines and we were in this little warehouse with no heat and no windows and making chair covers for local rental company and we would probably get one pair of custom jeans per month or something like that. It was like it was just enough to get by. And then the local news did a little 15second piece about us and then a couple people reached out and one guy had a friend who, you know, a friend of a friend lives in New York, used to work in the industry. I started talking with him as a, as a mentor. And he was like, you know, what do you want to do with this? And I was like, Oh, I want to be in Barney's uh, and kind of as a joke, but, but more like in five years. Uh, mm-hmm. And like two weeks later, he called back. He was like, Hey, I talked to the buyer at Barney's. She said she'd see you. What? Yeah. And I was like, we, you know, we never worked for another clothing company. We hadn't, we'd never been to a buying meeting. I had to call a friend of mine who worked in the industry. I was like, What do you How do you do this like what does a line sheet look like
3: (laughs) i have a question real quick because jeans are one of those things that a lot of brands make Were, were this was there ever a point when you were starting out where you were like this is never gonna work there's levi's there's gap there's all these denim companies already like what why are we doing this what are what are we doing just because i know there's a lot of people out there who are like Why should I make this thing? There's a million of them out there already. And what makes mine special? Or why would people buy mine?
1: Yeah. I think you always have to ask yourself those questions. But in my heart, I knew. Because I was looking for something that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. I was looking for something that was higher quality. I was looking for something that made me feel badass. I was looking for something that was made in a way that I wanted to support. I was looking for something that had more history, more teeth, more like just more. I, I wanted I wanted something better and I couldn't find it or I didn't have the means to get it. So so that might have been around, but it was maybe it was in stores that I didn't have access to or at price points that I couldn't dream of. But I wanted more soul and and I knew that what we were doing didn't exist. And whether or not it worked, I think was more like, "Will this actually work? Will right. people actually pay three hundred dollars for a pair of jeans?" Like, it was more like, "Is this business model possible? Is this business model sustainable? Can we make a better thing? Will people, you know, pay twice as much for a thing that's five times better?" But we were seeing that happen in coffee, in beer, at Whole Foods. Like, you know, if somebody's willing to spend twice as much for an Apple, like it does go down the line and and getting to the higher price points takes a long time, but, but the philosophy is there. The, the mindset of America is changing or it was changing and, and still is. And I could feel that I could sense it. I mean, we could sense it, not just me, but I mean, like it was happening. So when we needed it at such a small scale that, that we felt like there was a really good chance we could make it work. So absolutely. Questioning and, and
2: So I'm glad you had a friend in the garment business that could tell you what a line sheet was and what happens in a meeting. How did that meeting with Barneys go?
1: It was really kind of crazy and strange and terrifying and amazing. The opportunity to meet with them is a thing that we couldn't pass up. And we didn't really have the means to get up there. So I called my dad and I was like, Dad, I have to go to this thing. Can you help us out? Can you help us get there? And I had a cousin in town from Ukraine who was visiting who didn't speak any English. My dad was like, oh, I bet your cousin, Artyom, would love to see New York. I'll let you borrow my minivan and give you a couple hundred bucks for gas if you take him. And we were like, let's go. So me and Sarah, my cousin, and our intern got in the car and drove all night to New York. And we got to this meeting and the plan was that I would talk about everything and Sarah and our intern would be supportive and the buyer just wanted to see the fit. And so she gave me the jeans and was like, Will you go try these on for me? And it was like, you know, down the hallway, to the right, down another hallway (laughs) to get to a bathroom. So Sarah and our intern really ran the meeting. And I would come back and show them the jeans. And be like, Wow, that looks great. And they'd give me the next one and be like, okay, go try these on. And so I ran back and forth four (laughs) times with our four (laughs) pairs of jeans, you know, over the course of fifteen or twenty minutes. And you shared as much as I could, but it wasn't how we expected it to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the meeting, they were like, well, huh, this is interesting, but we don't know yet. We need to show this to everyone else on the team. Can we keep the samples for a couple of days? I'll mail them back. And we were like, okay. But we were kind of demoralized, too. We wanted to know. We wanted to know, like, yeah. did they like them? Did they not? Like, you drove we all some... night.
2: The meeting didn't go as you thought it would.
1: Yeah. They're like,
2: okay, don't call us. We'll call you. And you're yeah, like... Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so we went back to uh, one of our friends lived in Bushwick, and we were going to go sleep on his floor. And they ended up calling like four or five hours later. We were about to lay down, and, and they called. They said we want it for Beverly Hills and Madison Avenue, and we flipped out and
2: holy screamed
1: and went dancing that night. And
2: <laughs> how many yeah, pieces? Came home. D- how many yeah. pieces did they want?
1: Oh, they wanted 114 pieces, which for us was insanity because we were oh, only my- making like one a day at most. <laughs> Um, so what was the next step
3: you were like oh we've got to get people in here to help make these jeans is that kind of how it's it's scaled
1: no we we did it oh um yeah we didn't have we only had five sewing machines at that time and we didn't have a cutting table we we ended up getting the rolls of fabric and sarah and i put a pole you know it's huge rolls of fabric they're super heavy we put a pole through it and we would pick it up and walk it back and forth back and forth on the concrete truck loading dock <laughs> and we did all the cutting on a concrete floor <laughs> truck loading dock and then she and I cut and sewed every single pair and that building didn't have heat so we had these little space heaters and we were like warming up our fingers and sewing and warming up our fingers and our, our friends and family came and helped us like in the last final days iron them and pack them and get them all ready to go and we got the order out on the very last day it was January. 2009 that we shipped them Uh, and spring 2009 was the worst retail quarter ever on record that was like financial crisis all that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so here we are like no name brand with the most expensive (laughs) jean like in the worst retail quarter ever but they sold and they called us back in a few weeks and and said hey a lot of these sold we need more and we were like more what are you talking about we just spent four months making those we're like, yeah. <laughs> we need more, so we ended up getting hiring two people and we ended up getting a loan because the Obama stimulus plan went through. Um, that was the credit crunch. We couldn't get money.
2: Oh. And
1: it actually worked for us. We bought our cutting table with that. We hired our first two people with that. And we got the next order out, which was for six stores, and then paid off that loan like three months later and Then the order doubled again, and then the order doubled again, and, you know, every season we were hiring, building the factory, buying more machines, getting more space.
2: Has it been kind of smooth sailing, or would you say it's been, like, steady incrementally, but kind of herky-jerky like an old sewing machine,
1: or? (laughs) 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 Uh, I mean... (laughs)
2: because because I'm here's what I'm thinking right like you guys are doing something with traditional jeans making techniques and you're in an area that's got kind of a a wealth of people who might understand that but the industry isn't there anymore to support it and so you're trying to scale up but without you know tons of money and the economy's not doing great and you're got to communicate to your team about the level of craftsmanship and quality that's required like does that happen easily tell, tell us about that tricky balancing act
1: it's a crazy balancing act I mean it's I, I mean herky-jerky is probably the best I was laughing at that <laughs> because that's probably the best way to say it and it's it's because like the genes making part of it is is the part that really got us started and the part that we talk most about but then it's like every other element of running a business managing people finances taxes workers compensation like all these things that we really had no experience in all the legal parts i mean at some point in time you know we're getting yeah there's just trademarks and uh we were in
2: you're it. learning on the fly right
1: oh my god yeah all these things that like really worked like in projects of like jumping in that were just projects for me growing up worked really well and then in business it's a, it's a whole nother story but We were able to find really good mentors and that's really the only way we were able to make it through all, you know, navigate all these different things is that we found really smart people that were able to give us some guidance, I guess. I don't know. Um, Yeah.
2: That knowledge trust is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Every season something new would come up. It'd be a different thing. It'd be a different huge problem. And, and I think it like a design mentality is is what got us through it's like okay well here's a problem how do you solve this problem we're doing something new so we have to come up with new solutions i mean i think the design of our business model may be the most important thing that we've spent (laughs) design brain time doing in a way it wasn't out there in the same like there wasn't a model to follow Mm -hmm. we were doing like the sewing apparel brand business model, but upside down and backwards. So we're doing everything the opposite of how people said it should happen. Um, Right. It's not
2: more faster. um, It's better, slower, more detailed, (laughs)
1: more personal. (laughs) Exactly. And so how do you track that in production? How do you deal with some people that work faster, some people that work slower? We don't want to pay by the piece because it's about quality. You know, all those things are Herky jerky. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about your creative process, because, I mean, you're, the jeans are known for detailed craftsmanship and thoughtful construction. And like you just said, it's about quality, not quantity. And I've watched your you guys do great branding videos. I've I've watched them. And it's what I really love is seeing the pieces that have been out in the world and have Mm -hmm. developed their own personality with wear, where the indigo wears off, where the buttons get a, a shine. And I mean, it represents so much of American idealism and that pride in process. Like you've kind of explained to us where it comes from for you. How do you communicate that across your team to make sure that it's baked into every piece that goes out into the world?
1: I mean that that is the challenge, um, but one of the things that we do that I really love that I, I think our team does too is in the beginning, Sarah and I would sign every single pair of jeans that we made because it was our design and our craft, and the mm-hmm. the design of the process was as important as the design of the product, like how it was made, where it was made, what machines we were using, what every single detail, and a lot of those things we ended up building or modifying ourselves. But for us, it's about our team, and we can't do this without our team. We can't make more. We can't make better. And I want we wanted everyone on our team to feel that same sense of pride and connection to the process, the product. that That we are really a, a chain, and that every link in the chain is equally important. So when people have been with us for a while, and they're in the beginning, it was if they were as good or better than us at their respective parts Mm -hmm. Um, we have this ceremony we get the whole company together we give them a sharpie and then now they sign their name in the jeans Uh, and we still do that it's a way that it's not like it's not about me it's not about sarah it's not about rally denim it's about our people and it's about our team and it's about our what we're doing with our minds and our hearts and our hands in this place like the winemakers, like what they're doing in their vineyard, what they're doing in their winery. Like our workshop is, a, I mean, I think of it as this like magical space that the air in that space is different than the air outside. Not, not necessarily better or worse, but it's just like, it's ours. Like, this Mm -hmm. is a thing that we create. This is a heart that we've built. This is a, a machine that we, we tend being, you know, all of us in that, in that arena.
2: Do you think that Sharpie ceremony is a sort of an initiation where the people on the team can take as much pride of ownership and the artistry of the product? Is that a way of sharing the glory?
1: Uh, we hope so. I mean, that's, that's the idea. That's what we want, and I, I think it works.
2: This many years into it, are you still as passionate about the process?
1: Oh, more so, for sure. I mean, every single day we learn and we see and we test and we I mean, Sarah and I are making things every single day uh, in our house, in our, in the shop. We're, I mean, constantly inspired and, you know, with everything that we learn as a company, with everything we learn personally, with the support that we get from, I mean, everyone that wears our thing, you know, the things that we make. Yeah. I, I love it. Is, um,
3: is the making of things or the designing of things with, it, are are those your favorite parts of the process or are there other parts that you like, what's your favorite part of the whole process
1: right now? the I mean, making, designing, modifying fabrics and then editing them. I, I just worked on a project with a, a friend of mine. He's an artist in Los Angeles named Phil America. And we laid out like a hundred yards of fabric in the back parking lot and sprayed them with bleach and threw rocks on them and jumped on them and like just kind of destroyed a bunch of fabric and then washed it cleaned it ironed it and then we would lay it out and and pick the parts that were most interesting and we would cut out the pieces that actually worked where it showed more contrast more texture more beauty of the indigo uh shade and then created these flags he he does a lot of work with flags and so we're making three different flags out of those fabrics um that's more i think that's the thing that like i really really love sarah's working on this quilt right now um in in a similar way and she she does a lot more hand stitching and mending and i think it's uh, about this like showing time through the fabric and then through your work with the fabric that's inspiring both of us in very different ways i mean the the work that she's doing is in one direction and what I'm doing is kind of in another, but it's kind of, of the same philosophy and it only comes with time. It only comes with working with the material, being around it as long as we have. So it's been 10, 11 years that we've been, you know, completely in this medium and there's still so much to learn. There's still so much to do. We've got indigo vats in our backyard. We like invite our friends over and have a fire and a you know fourth of july barbecue and we're all indigo dipping things at the same time
3: <laughs> well it's kind of like what you did when you had your friends come over and stomp grapes this time they come yeah. over and play with denim
1: <laughs> exactly no it's it's true i mean we like sit out back and play bocce and <laughs> dye all these different things it's really really fun and really beautiful and it's inspiring that there's like still so much to learn, so much to do.
3: So besides these um, artistic projects you have, you also have been designing other things aside from jeans. You've been working with furniture companies and you've done textiles. Can you talk about how um, those projects came about and what your creative process is in relation to non-pants projects?
1: Yeah. We ended up meeting uh, Jerry Helling, from Bernhardt Design years ago through a friend of ours, a musician, Tift Merritt. And one day Jerry just, I, I, we didn't know him, he, he called and he was like, hey, I want to come up to your shop and visit. And he came up and he was like, I want you to design a table for us. And we were like, kind of like shaking our head, like, are you, what? what? <laughs> and, and we were like salivating at the same time, because you're, like, we love to design all kinds of different things. And like, what an opportunity. And we worked with Jerry directly on that first table. It was called Power Bar, and we launched it at Wanted Design. With this huge installation, we brought part of our factory up and some of our people, and we were making jeans and worked with an artist, uh, Jeffs and Rob, to make some sculptures. It was a really cool and fun thing. But it's a, I think we're asking ourselves similar questions about you know, the obvious like form and function. How do you make a beautiful thing that actually works? Uh, what are the materials? Learning about the finesse of those materials. How can we showcase, like, uh, how it's made, without, like, being too obnoxious about it? I guess <laughs> in like subtle ways. A lot of the design details in the genes speak to how we actually make the thing, and it's really subtle, really small. But if you know how to make jeans or things, you notice it. It's a similar set of questions that we then apply to. Furniture or um, the second project that we did with Bernhardt was, was textiles and, and patterns. And Sarah had a lot more to do with that one. She's more graphic-minded than I am.
2: Did your woodworking come into into play in designing Power Bar? Oh, or for sure. Yeah, yeah, because I'm wondering if you're so intimate with the material, designing furniture is kind of outside of the denim sphere. So
1: yeah, Way outside of the denim sphere, but I, I mean furniture for and did a lot of woodworking for years and years and years so i have a i don't know pretty good connection to to what that's like and i was really excited to get back to that it had been uh, a few years you know since i had been able to really focus on and be in a wood shop and work so that opportunity was was incredible so we actually are are launching the third project with them like right now like this this week
3: oh Um, that's exciting
1: yeah 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 it's called blueprint it's office it's office table systems they're really 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 pretty um, <laughs> i think they turned out really well um
3: that's exciting so we,
1: like previewed them at icff in in may mm-hmm. but they officially launched for sale like either this week or next week
3: awesome i'm interested in your relationship because you know you're a couple who also runs a business together, works together, lives together, et cetera. Do you have any advice for other couples who might want to go into business together?
1: <laughs> I think every couple and every dynamic is different and it's hard to give advice. I mean, at, at different times, I mean, I would, I would give you the full range of answers from like, don't ever do this to it is the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life. I mean Sarah is an eternally fascinating person to me, and she's her perspective on life on business on design is is really inspiring and it's fun for me to be around and I get to spend so much time with her, probably like multiple lifetimes of time more than if we were working in different places um, and that's for better and for worse I mean when you you, know, you live with someone and You know, some (laughs) days it's the best, and some days you're like, ah, I really want my space. And, you know, all those things happen, and you have to learn and adapt and and be sensitive. And, you know, for us, it works. It's not easy, but it's... What would Sarah
2: say is your greatest asset or strength?
1: She probably would say something about my ambition or energy.
2: And what would you say about her?
1: Whew. I don't know if I can say one thing. There's so many. I mean, her. Yeah, just
2: rattle off a few.
1: <laughs> she has a, a, a way of creating beauty that I, is different than. I mean, her, her lens of, of beauty and what she can actually make and create is different than anything I've ever seen. And her ability to see something in her mind and then actually create it. To see a thing that doesn't exist in the world in her mind, and then make it is is not anything I've ever been able to do, and not anything I've ever seen.
2: Um, it's pretty magical.
1: It is. It, it feels magical. That's actually. I mean, that's this is what we're drawn to design and making for. It feels creating and making things that didn't exist feels magical. It Feels powerful. It's,
2: well, it is, it is empowering, I think. Not only do you have the power to manipulate the material world because you understand the physics of the different materials and the machines and all that's needed to kind of construct things, whether it's a garment or furniture, but you have the power to take something from an idea into reality. And I think that's something that can't be outsourced or automated, and is an incredibly valuable skill set.
1: Yeah, I agree.
2: So, but along the way of taking something that doesn't exist into making it something that does exist, even if it's, you know, we can say that genes existed long before you did, but the ideal pair of genes in your image didn't. (laughs) Right. But along the way from taking something from zero to everything there are usually a lot of learning curves and big problems. Yeah. Do you have a method for tackling those or for demystifying things that you don't know? Or, or is it just a matter of biting off small chunks and chewing it thoroughly? Like, how does that work for Victor? <laughs> so or for hard. the Victor and Sarah team, you know? Yeah.
1: Like, I mean, I think it's for us, like, we have to be completely wide-eyed and honest with ourselves, with each other, in a way that is hard to describe. Like uh, maybe that's being like, I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. We're really good at it, but we're not the best and we're not as good as we're going to be. We miss things. We're human. Uh, We mess things up. You know, when those things aren't right, we have to call them out and we can't be blind to like, because it's going to take another million hours or we're going to have to undo all the work that we did or, Something like if it's not right, it's not right. And if Sarah tells me that I need to be able to say, like, take a deep breath and be like, Oh shit, you're right. Like, okay, that sucks. Or for us, we lean a little bit closer to this what this problem is and dig deeper and that's that's a hard path, it's a hard road, but I feel like every time we've identified some hard thing and dug in deeper, harder, more. The things that we learn are the things that you can't read about. They're the things that I can't share in words. They're the um, like the understanding of that thing that we have after we get through that process is, is greater than if one of our mentors told us about it.
2: I think I get what you're saying. It's like a mentor can tell you about an obstacle you might encounter. But until you encounter that obstacle and figure out how to dismantle it, it's going to keep appearing on your path and you're mm-hmm. either going to go around it not really understanding it, or you're going to get into it, tinker with it, figure out how to dismantle it, and then it won't keep reappearing because now you understand it in intimate detail.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not just about going around it. It's like you can go around it once or twice, but then it like can take you down. <laughs> like
2: right, right. Right. And you spend a lot of energy and time in avoidance.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: I think they call that radical acceptance. It's sort of like don't don't keep running away from your fears. you gotta just sort of face them, see them for what they are, and it's it's not brute force, it's more like, yeah, just understanding what it is you're up against and and being willing to deal with all the parts of it, yeah and to smooth it out. I don't know anyway, it sounds like you guys are working it out. <laughs> Trying to. Um,
3: I want to know what's in the cards for you, you personally as a couple, or you just you as Victor or Raleigh Denham in the future. Um, And I'm not talking about, like, right now, but I mean, like,
1: long-term future. Me too. I want to know too.
3: (laughs) What do you want? Like what do you what would be like a dream for you guys to design together? Or what would be like the coolest thing you would want to do?
1: Yeah, I was I've been thinking a lot about this and I want more impact and and I haven't figured out exactly what that looks like yet or how to do that. I think that what we're doing is like is really good. Like I think it's like good in like a quality sense and then a I yeah, we're doing good work but it's only accessible by a few people. And that kind of keeps me up at night sometimes. So I've been looking around for places that we can have more impact, both in volume or price or like things that actually could change the world or could change the industry. We, we made one gene. We ended up working with some farmers and Grew the very first crop of certified organic cotton ever grown in North Carolina. I was able to convince the cotton gin, the spinning mill, the weaving mill to all like run this fabric for us. And we made the first, I mean, a a gene with the smallest carbon footprint of any gene that I know of on earth. And from the first crop of certified organic cotton. Now, the thing is super expensive, but it's like proof of concept is there. It's like, no, we can do this. Mm -hmm. Okay, now what? Can we do this with Patagonia? Can we do this with Wrangler? Can we do this with, you know, other companies that have a greater reach? That's kind of where, that's where my head is. So, like, I don't, I don't know exactly what that looks like or I haven't figured it out. So, if you or your listeners have ideas, I'm all ears. I want to hear, <laughs> I feel like we've got, I think we're, I feel really excited about the next five years that we've kind of spent a lot of time and a lot of energy Building the team, building the factory, building the mm-hmm. brand. And and now we've got this like amazing opportunity to to harness some of that energy, some of the design space, some of the making knowledge to just do do more. I mean I think it's gonna be
2: in I really appreciate not to cut you off, sorry, but I mean I yeah. really appreciate that you've spent so much time and energy building the ideal pair of jeans that's made in the ideal way. And instead of figuring out how to sell more pants to more people, you're trying to figure out how to reverse engineer the supply chain to make it better all the way from the ground up.
1: It sounds lofty when you say it.
2: Yeah, no, but I'm into it. Do it. (laughs) You can save the world, Victor. You and Sarah with your pants. I think that's what manufacturing is has an obligation and a responsibility to do in the modern age Mm -hmm. and uh and i like that that's where your head is that's how you're thinking about it and the proof of concept is the beginning and uh now we've put it out there in the universe listeners do your thing (laughs) bring it in make it happen
1: (laughs) and then i also want to design other things
2: yeah like what what would be like the coolest
1: thing i'm not the coolest thing i don't know i mean we We got to work with OMA uh, on our New York store and thinking about architecture uh, was a really fascinating and fun part of our Mm. brain uh, that I'd like to use more, but also (laughs) like ditches and like home things. Uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm interested in making anything, everything. Sorry, not a good answer, but that's what it (laughs) is.
3: I think that is like the best designer answer. (laughs) 'cause most designers they just always want to design as much or as many things as they can be just because they love design yeah um so besides the project that you have that's available through Bernhardt, what else are you working on what's coming up for you that you want our listeners to know about?
1: The things that we have coming up are really rally denim focused um yeah do you have didn't... like
3: new pants coming out
1: yeah, and it's We've had this really profound shift in our business in the past year or two by putting some effort into our our website, really thinking about nurturing our current clients, and it's allowed us to design a lot more interesting things than we have in the past because a lot of people that follow what we're doing and that are into what we're doing, they also want to learn. They also want something different. They, they already have a couple pairs of our jeans or, or something that. You know, they're great, but they want something different and new. And, and so we're finding all these new fabrics. We're developing new fabrics. We're de- like finding these things that feel really nerdy and making really small runs of them, 10 pieces, 20 pieces, and offering those to just people that are on our list. And it's been so much fun because we've been able to take kind of ideas and make them into finished things and get them to people that actually are really into it on a consistent basis. And it's, it's kind of what we always dreamed of. And it's actually happening.
2: Ooh. Well, how do you get on that list?
1: Oh, at our website, com. (laughs) And uh,
2: where can we see all of these things that you're talking about? Do you, do you post them on your Instagram? Can we find that?
1: Yeah, yeah, we post it on the Instagram and I'm spending a lot of time writing stories about fabrics or constructions or, Different new products that we're making uh, on our newsletter, which I'm hoping is interesting and useful to the people that sign up. That, so,
2: is the the central location to keep tabs on everything? Raleigh dot com. Yeah. Well, Victor, it's amazing what you're doing. Thank you so much <laughs> for for sharing your story with us.
1: Thank you. I really, really, it's an honor to be here. I, I'm really grateful. Thank you.
3: sounded like he had a lot of adventures before starting Raleigh Denim. I mean, spending all that time in Europe and then he was in New York and he made wine and he worked as a chef and he was a, a soccer player. <laughs> yeah, he was into a lot of things. I, I love it. I love that he took all of that energy and instead of, you know, stressing himself out, <laughs> he uh, put he funneled it into making and doing learning.
2: Well, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about that I thought was really interesting is he had all this energy and, and he also had kind of an obsessive tendency that was that enabled him to kind of focus this energy into learning to make wine, bread, hats and bags and the perfect pair of jeans. Like, I think a lot of times people squander that energy, it gets spread out or sometimes in a higher cost of living city type situation, it gets sucked up by just the effort it takes to live in a city like that. Right. I thought it was really interesting that he knew right away that he was going to marry Sarah. And that, I know. That's such a cute story. It's such a cute story. But, I mean, the, the kismet of meeting not only your future wife, but your future business partner and creative mm-hmm. collaborator how does I I had to go through a lot of people before I understood how valuable you know like how how to do, I don't know like it's just an incredibly complex thing to I don't know meld your identities like that and still have distinct autonomous identities which they do yeah
3: and I also think that it's a certain type of couple that can work together and live together and have a life together, because that probably wouldn't work with me and my husband. <laughs> um, so I, I respect and admire what they've got going on. But I think it, it's it's about a partnership, right? So you think about it, like any other business partnership, you each have your strengths and you work together, but there's a, a profound amount of respect that you have to have for the other person and their opinions. And there's trust that needs to be Mm -hmm. there. So I Mm -hmm. think it's, you know, sometimes it's natural that you work with a partner because you already trust them and you already value them and value their ideas.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was really crucial what he said about how fascinated he is by her and how she has this gift for uh, this lens for beauty that he doesn't have. Because he sort of understands that she brings something to the table that he never could. Not that he couldn't develop his own lens for beauty. I'm just saying it's different than his. And, and he also acknowledged that she probably appreciates in him his, his ambition. And so, I mean, just to make a sewing machine reference here, if somebody is the motor and somebody else is the stitch that can work really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely.
3: I can't imagine the amount of work that goes into building a business like they've built. I mean, I don't think they could have really done it anywhere other than a place like Raleigh, first of all. Second of all, I feel like they must have good instincts because, you know, building a factory and and being able to try to get people who work for you to understand your vision when your vision is so focused on quality and handcrafted product. Um, And then to also have to deal with all the other stuff that's business related, like marketing and accounting and contracts and insurance and HR and just all of those things. I mean, it's an incredible amount of things to have to learn and manage, especially if you never went to school for those kinds of things.
2: Right. I mean, he did have a, a business background from school a little bit, but you know, not not out in the world. And it's one thing to learn those things, but learning them while other people's livelihoods are attached must be incredibly stressful because you're making those mistakes and those mistakes are not just impacting you and your business. They're impacting mm-hmm. other people who show up to work and expect a certain sort of a certain sort of protocol. And so I I don't know, it's just got to feel so stressful to be undergoing those growing pains as a business while other people are kind of having their livelihoods impacted and, you know, helped and stressed by the same growing pains.
3: Yeah, but I do admire that they created the business in Raleigh and they work with a lot of the local mills and farmers and companies I think that they have a very noble mission um, not only to support the community that they're in um, and to carry on the tradition of of handcrafting products but um, or making things in general but that they care about that whole process from the from even where it starts with the farmers yeah where the where the product comes from what the material is how it's made all the way up to the finished
2: product yeah. And I love that, you know, that they're responding to the heritage of Raleigh itself. Right. Yeah. And their pants tell a story. <laughs> they tell a story both in the craftsmanship and detailing and the heritage and the agriculture of where they're born. But then after, I'm sorry, I'm going to get <laughs> a little like, I love relationships with objects. But then after they're transferred to somebody else, a customer, They start to tell the story of that customer in their lines of wear, in the way the patterns start to show up on the jeans, in the creases behind the knee, in the wallet fading, in the knee, you know, wear. And I love the way jeans kind of tell the story of your daily migrations, your daily actions that way. And they show up on you like a patina of hard work.
3: Yeah. And I think that's what they... That's probably the customer, I think, that they're going for with these pants. Because, you know, you could buy two pair of jeans for what these one pair of Raleigh denim jeans costs, or maybe even three, depending on where you shop. But I think they're looking for the customer that buys a pair of jeans and really cares about that pair of jeans and wears it religiously. And, you know, it does wear like that. Mm-hmm. And it is a long-term commitment. It's a heirloom-type object. I mean, not that they would pass it down, but I remember getting my dad's jeans after he had be done with them, you know, uh, when I was a teenager. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, I was
3: like, these are cool, you know, with the faded pockets where his wallet was. And, you know, that it's lived in and loved. And, um, you know, he moved on and then he gave them to me. And
2: it feels, you put them on and it feels homier. Mm-hmm. Or you have that pair of jeans that, like, now has all your memories attached to it. Like, oh, I wore these to that concert. Or, oh, I remember making out with so-and-so in the backseat of, you know. Right. (laughs) In the backseat of Roger's van.
3: (laughs) Oh, man. I had this one pair of jeans when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And I swear, I don't know what happened to them either. I think they must have ripped, like, from knee to knee, like, so bad that I couldn't wear them anymore. But I wore them... I it must have been all 4 years. And they're my favorite favorite jeans ever. And I still to this day will see pictures of myself from high school and be like, "Man, I wish I still had those jeans."
2: I remember in the 8th grade I was bullied by a girl who kept saying she was going to beat me up after school, and so at the beginning of every day she would spread the the news that she was wearing her beat-up jeans cuz she was totally prepared to like pummel her me beat after up school. Beat-up jeans? Yeah. <laughs> And What does that even mean? I, that's what I thought. And so I like totally diffused the bully situation, but then I became fascinated with the idea of beat up jeans. And I'm like, yeah, you got different kinds of jeans for different activities. I mean, I've
3: heard of like <laughs> painting pants,
2: yeah,
3: you know, or like, these are my gardening pants, but not beat up jeans, but that's, that's funny.
2: <laughs> I mean, I guess it's, it's mean spirited, but it's also like, right. yeah. it's tough. I was like, oh yeah beat up jeans i guess you need to be able to move in them and they need to be kind of sturdy i feel like everybody's probably have like a
3: story about a pair of jeans or a you know one pair that they absolutely loved or the ones that made their butt look perfect or whatever it is yeah
2: i call those my space pants (laughs) because my ass is out of this world
3: Thanks for listening. To see images of Raleigh Denham's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and we would love it if you would please do us a favor and rate and review Clever. It really helps
2: a lot. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Dovers and Jamie Derringer, also known as 2VDE Media, with editing by Jenny Josephson and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.